You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB podcast for volume 48, number 6, June 2010. My name's David Fisackley and I'm DTB's deputy editor and I'm joined by DTB's editor, Ike Leonacci. Hello. Our editorial this month is titled, Why Pregabalin? Ike, what's this about? Recently, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence published a guideline on the management of neuropathic pain. One of the odd features about that, from our point of view, is the recommendation uh, as first-line drug treatment to use uh, the drug pregabalin, uh, really in replacement for gabapentin. The guideline makes no firm recommendation about using gabapentin for neuropathic pain in any indication. Uh, so we have looked at that uh, in the editorial because we think that that raises implications for the NHS in terms of um, the affordability, for one thing, of, of substituting um, pregabalin uh, wholesalely for, um, for gabapentin. And do we know why they reached this uh, recommendation? Well, the, the guideline uh, appears to be based on a, a health economic analysis, which... Uh, seems to indicate that in the views of the people who put it together that there are no circumstances in which uh, pregabalin could be less cost-effective than gabapentin. Um, In our view, it doesn't necessarily follow from that, uh, as I've suggested, that the NHS will would find moving away from gabapentin a long-established drug, much, much longer established than than pregabalin. it's not clear whether the NHS would necessarily find that an affordable recommendation. So is it as simple as saying that the economic evaluation has got it wrong? Well, I'm not sure we're in a position to say that. Um, Certainly there are legitimate questions and obvious questions that can be raised about the health economic evaluation, one of which, of course, is the fact that um, it's based on indirect comparisons between the two drugs. And for clinicians, is it uh, similar to choosing between value-baked beans and a premium brand product, or is it more complex? Well, it's probably more complex, uh, as drugs often are, than, than that kind of uh, evaluation. But there are there are similarities in the sense of um, one of the key questions is going to be whether the benefit which, which uh, accrues from using gabapentin um, is, uh, it, may be, it may be less cost-effectiveness when... Uh, when analysed in the way it was by the uh, uh, by the nice health and economic evaluation, but it doesn't necessarily follow that the there is no worthwhile benefit from gabapentin compared to pregabalin. And in a, an environment where cash is strapped, it it's just possible, of course, that that paying for what appears to be a, a slightly less cost-effective drug may actually be uh, cheaper on mass. Right. Thank you. Uh, moving on to our first main article this month, we know that headaches are, are common and lots of people seek medical help. And we also know that it's quite possible to overuse some of the drugs used to treat headaches and actually make the problem worse. This article looks at the uh, use of acupuncture. Yes, as you've as you suggested, David, one of the problems in treating headache is the treatment for headache sometimes. We, we know that certain drugs can paradoxically cause uh, something called medication overuse headache. And for that and other reasons, um, there is uh, often a, a need to consider options which are not uh, drug options. Uh, and acupuncture has been suggested as one of those options for both 
tension, headache and migraine. What the article looks at is whether there's any evidence to back up that suggestion. Uh, and if so, what circumstances could acupuncture be used in treating patients with either of those conditions? And is this an area that's easy to do research in? Um, it's very tricky to do research on, or can be very tricky to do research on acupuncture. Um, one has the issue of, of how do you control for a process like acupuncture. Uh, it's not as easy as, as controlling for a, a drug treatment. Um, what is placebo acupuncture? The mere act of, of going through a process which is similar to acupuncture may well have a, a therapeutic effect. So it, it can be difficult to be sure of uh, how best to assess acupuncture for conditions like headache and, and so on. Uh, and for that and other uh, methodological limitations, the answer to your question is no, it, it can be very difficult to do research in this area. But there's enough published to, to make a reasonable, uh, educated uh, and informed decision about, about the use of acupuncture. Yeah, we, we feel so for, for, for these two conditions and, and that's what we've tried to do. Thank you. Our second main article uh, looks at the challenge of preventing and treating postpartum hemorrhage. Ike, what do we cover in this article? Well, postpartum hemorrhage, particularly in the developing world, is a, is a major killer and it has a, a sizable mortality even in the UK. So methods of, of stopping women uh, suffering this complication and dealing with it when it does occur are, are clearly very important. One new approach suggested in, in the past few years has been the use of misoprostol. Now, misoprostol is a, a, a synthetic prostaglandin, and it's well known to have both effects on the uterus and the cervix, and that's made it a potential candidate treatment in various scenarios in, in obstetrics and gynaecology. We've looked at the evidence to see, first of all, whether it has useful effects in either of those scenarios, and secondly, we try to give recommendations of whether and how it fits in with more established um, both preventative and uh, treatment uh, approaches for postpartum hemorrhage. And are the differences between uh, healthcare approaches in both well-resourced um, health services and those that are less well-resourced? Well, there can be. I mean, certainly treating a woman with postpartum hemorrhage in the UK can be very different from managing the same woman in rural parts of the developing world. The access to facilities, as you can imagine, is very different. And therefore, the potential role of any treatment, such as um, such as misoprostol, may differ strongly between those two scenarios. So we look into that kind of area, whether if myoprostol does indeed have a place, whether whether that place is, is affected by the scenario in which the woman woman is at the time. And is this an area where evidence is, is changing much? Well, there have been some recent studies looking at, at uh, the use of, of this drug in, in postpartum hemorrhage. So, yes, the, the evidence has been building uh, and uh, we feel has reached a stage where it is possible to make some reasonably well-based evidence-supported recommendations. Good, thank you. And our final article uh, explores the issue of late-onset hypogonadism in men, or perhaps we should call it the male menopause. And I guess it's just a case of men making a fuss over nothing, or a bit like man flu, or is there something more to it? Well, it's a tricky area, David. It has been suggested that some men go through a condition analogous to the menopause in women, 
in which testosterone levels f fall off and that fall in, in hormone levels is accompanied by uh, specific symptoms. And colloquially, that's been known as the, the andropause or, or male menopause. But those who believe in such a phenomenon prefer to use the, the title late-onset hypogonadism. What we've tried to do is look for the the evidence that there is such a condition, because it, it is fairly controversial as to whether such a thing exists. Certainly in terms of hormone levels, there is there's no doubt there's, there's no sudden and complete cessation in hormone production in the way that there is in, the, in, in women at the menopause. So whatever's happening is not directly analogous to the female menopause. But even beyond that, there's some question as to whether men actually do go through anything even remotely similar in terms of dropping off in hormone levels and secondarily symptoms related to that that is a, a, a fraught area so what we've tried to do is look at the evidence first of all that such a thing exists and secondly look at what is actually quite limited evidence as to whether um, treating men in those with that supposed condition actually makes them any better in the long run thank you very much uh, to read these and any of our articles, uh, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com. <laughs>